0: Hey, Jerry, how's it going?
1: Good, how are you? It's good seeing Fantastic. you.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I attended your performance in London uh,
1: several years back. I remember. I remember meeting you afterwards. Oh, this is
0: the embarrassing moment where you, you say, oh, I can't remember. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. I was with the Asian female British chess champion. She, she's been at the top for 10 years in a row, and uh, it was delightful meeting you guys, and I really appreciate you spending some time with us this evening. Well, yeah, it's my pleasure. We've also got Dr. Das with us, and if you're not familiar with Dr. Das, Jerry, he is a psychiatrist. He's got his own YouTube channel, and he's worked with some of the most complex, um, heinous, and emotional and shocking cases of mental illness in the UK. Some Um, of them have been
2: all right, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hi there, hi Jerry. Hello, nice to meet you too. So I imagine none of my clients fit that description. (laughs) (laughs) So there's been so much time
0: since that first season of Making a Murderer, the docuseries just hit the screens and people were up in arms all over the world. There was this climax and now it's kind of gone down considerably. So Mm. my first question, Jerry, would be, What developments have come about in recent years? I know both of those poor guys are still behind bars. I've been watching it here and there, but yeah, especially Brendan Dassey. It's an absolute tragedy.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, So the the two cases, uh, Brendan's is dormant right now. There's no legal case pending in the courts. Uh, There is a movement to try and get him clemency from the Wisconsin governor, uh, which so far he's been um, unwilling to do. Basically, because he's got a policy that he doesn't—he grants, considers pardons only after you've completed your sentence and five years have elapsed, which of course does nothing for somebody who's in prison, wrongly convicted, right? Um, so there's still a movement going on there. That Brendan does still have some legal remedies, and I think his lawyers are certainly exploring that, but I, I'm not privy to any, you know, any of the details on what that might be. Stephen, um, his case went up to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals denied his motion for a new trial. Um, he then asked the Wisconsin Supreme Court to review the case and they declined to do so. They have never reviewed any uh, of Stephen's cases, by the way. Um, Wisconsin Supreme Court ducks every, every time he comes in front of them, um, but the Court of Appeals did say that one of the issues, uh, a newer issue that developed um, involving a uh, basically a newspaper delivery person who said came forward and said that he actually saw um, Bobby Dassey uh, and another individual pushing this RAV4 on the Avery property the morning it's discovered, uh, like early morning when a newspaper is delivered. And um, that issue is still alive and can be reviewed the court of appeals basically said you can file a new motion and consider that you would have to bring it back in front of the trial judge see if you can get a hearing um, that's the amazing thing is that he has still not had even an, a hearing in court where any witness could be could be presenting evidence uh, even though his, kathleen zellner has filed 200 page motions with with factual issues that really could only and should only be decided after you have a hearing, the trial judge has refused every single time. Um, I, I think she really does not want to have to go through the experience of worldwide media descending upon her courtroom because it would be, uh, it certainly draw a lot of interest. But so she's working on, so she just recently sent out a tweet uh, that that she's got new evidence that's coming forward along with this other issue. So we'll have to wait and see. The wheels so of justice move very slowly. They it do
2: does. indeed. Can I ask Jerry, do you I mean at least on the surface, it doesn't sound like the all the exposure that the two supposed culprits got from making a murderer has actually changed the trajectory. Would you agree with that? Do you think it's made a difference in this case actually?
1: Well you know, some people ask has it made it worse? Um because the state of Wisconsin now has to dig in their heels, um, circle the wagons, as we would say in America, um, that they don't want to admit that they made this kind of a mistake and, um, or that there was that kind of corruption. And so I don't know, I mean, you, you could look at it two ways. Um, maybe it's made it worse because of that, but on the other hand, without the exposure that they got, it, uh, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey would have just been like so many, Countless others um, wrongly convicted, sitting in prison that nobody knows about or cares about.
0: Yeah, Jerry, is there a massive amount of money at stake here with the state of Wisconsin, for example? If they were exonerated, then other prisoners whose crime lab, the same crime lab, processed their cases, there would be all kinds of legal action and, and settlements.
1: There would be now. You know, there's there's a qualified immunity in America for law enforcement um, that really bars a lot of of money, lawsuits, and, and damages that can be brought, um, but not when there's a deliberate corrupt actor uh, in this case, um, as there appears to be some evidence of that the, the if the police are found to have, you know, actually corruptly framed him in some way, that would not be um, immune from lawsuit. And so, yeah, I mean, he asked for $36 million his last time, and now he's been in prison for another 15 years. So you can only imagine um, the exposure. And that, of course, has got to be a factor in, in what kind of justice he gets and, and their willingness to, um, to resist any effort to, to give him another chance in court.
2: And in, for the viewers who who don't know your work, Jerry, do you mind explaining your involvement and the specific aspects that you personally? Sure.
1: In? So uh, myself and Dean Strang were Stephen Avery's lawyers in the case that he's now in prison for um, the murder of Teresa Halbach. Uh, we tried the case. Um, it was like a six-week trial. The jury was out for four or four and a half days, something like that, and. Um, it's depicted in the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer, because we kind of took a chance early on in the case um, before the trial when we were approached by these filmmakers who really were were students, graduate students in film from New York University, who got interested in the case, came out there and started recording uh, interviews with various people. and And we agreed to participate in behind the scenes interviews not interviews. I'm sorry. They, we were never interviewed. It was uh, cinema verite is the style where they, they basically just set up a camera in the corner and and record what's going on. So, Dean and I would be talking about, you know, how are we going to handle this witness or that. That was all recorded, and and then they also had all the, the entire trial rec- uh, recording of it, and they put it all together. It took like nine years before they, um really before the market came to them, because when the, this case went to trial, there really was no streaming market. Um, the only way you would get something like this would be on a DVD from some s- small outfit called Netflix, <laughs> which um, I, I talk about this in my book just so people can understand how quickly the market has developed. There were no iPhones even when the Stephen Avery trial went, uh, happened. Um, Netflix. Uh, there was an offer that Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for 150 million dollars, and they decided not to. <laughs> and now look what you know block, block, uh, Blockbuster Video is out of business, and <laughs> Netflix is the, the you know huge grill around the world. So um, originally they were trying to to package this into a you know two hour, four hour uh, program on TV, and the market really wasn't there. And then when once this idea of streaming came along. I guess Netflix got interested in. So that's why it took so long. Um, but that suddenly then it it just when it aired, it went viral and people could not believe the um, the evidence that we brought forward that looked like there was police corruption and a frame up and uh wrongful conviction. And it's just it was insane initially. Uh, you know, I, I the I could not walk down the street without people coming up to me and stopping me and um, asking about this and having this opinion about that. And um, so, thankfully, that's, you know, that's completely gone now. I can, uh, I still get stopped in airports for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> but generally, I, I'm, a, a, you know, ordinary anonymous citizen like I used to be.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely groundbreaking. And look at how many uh, imitations have come about, you know, since from the stylization, the music, the drone shots. But I'm I'm sure right. people people are are fascinated by what's happened to some of the main characters. I don't know if you you perhaps have not kept abreast of everybody, but you know anything from uh, legal supervillain Ken Kratz to Stephen Avery's parents. What do do you
1: know anything that's
0: happened with anybody?
1: Well, sadly, Stephen's mother passed away this past summer. Um, his father is still alive, but he's in failing health too. Um, mm. Uh, Mr. Kratz and I, you know, never got along, so we we don't exchange Christmas cards. I, I don't really know where he is at. He's he was on social media for a while and just got you know incredible bashing, and he's really sort of disappeared. The last I heard, he was he had moved to California um, and was trying to explore some possible commentator role on. Something, but I haven't heard anything. Do
0: you think he was secretly delighting in all that bashing?
1: You know, I don't know. I could never figure that guy out. Um, and I, I don't really want to get inside his brain and, and see what all's going <laughs> around in there. <laughs> um, I'll leave that for somebody else.
2: Uh, what about Stephen and Brandon? How are they doing? Do you think that they have some hope that they will be released one day?
1: I think they do. I'm sure it's very discouraging. Um, uh, under uh, under Wisconsin law, uh, once an attorney, once a defendant has uh, another lawyer, um, uh, another lawyer cannot contact them. So I have not actually been able to speak with Stephen in, since January of 2016. Um, Dean and I met with him right after, right the day before it came out on Netflix. Um, we had a, a preview copy about a week or so beforehand. that I watched, and we wanted to meet with him and kind of prepare him. You know, I I knew it was well done, but I had no idea it was going to be this kind of you know exposure like it did get. But um, but I know that yeah, you know, I've I, I know people are very frustrated out in the the world and the community viewers. I know Stephen and Brendan have got to be very frustrated as well. You know, I've represented. Um, I talk about this in my book, Illusion of Justice, another case, not just Steven Avery's, several of them I, I discuss, but one in particular where I represented a man named Mark Ralph Armstrong for 15 years before I finally got his case dismissed and exonerated and had him released from prison. And by that time, he'd spent 29 years in prison. Mm-hmm. So American justice is, it works at a snail pace once, you go get into the appellate. It, it, there's this real effort to avoid reversing judgments, something what they call finality of judgment. Uh, you know, there's which there's good merit for, and in, in a lot of you know, at, at some point we need things to be final so people can rely on them, et cetera. But when someone's innocence is at stake, um, that should not trump uh, the ability to have a fair hearing. And unfortunately, it does. It can take. It's a very, very long time.
0: I read your book, Illusion of Justice, when it first came out. Absolutely excellent. I think I left a review on Amazon UK for it. Thank you. And what were you setting out to achieve? I, don't, I can't remember. if It was you or Dean that said, "You know, that there's Stephen Avery's all over the country that no one's ever heard about." Could you could you give the broader picture of, you know, of the U.S. justice system and the poor people seem to be? Um... Yeah, you
1: know, it's um, you know we're. We have so many, exo- the good thing is that people are being exonerated. We have so many of them that they become routine. People don't even really pay attention anymore. Um, you know, 150, 200 a year um, exonerations. But, but people that have served decades, I mean, just incredible times. Like, you know, Shawshank Redemption kind of experience. Um, and then to get out, it's like, you know, Rip Van Winkle, um, the, the changes that they, they see. And there are thousands of them. There are various academics who've tried to estimate how many actually innocent people are in prison in America. And um, it's varied from anywhere from, you know, 2% maybe to 8. Well, even at 1%, we have so many. We have 2 million people in prison in America. 1% is 20,000 innocent people. And at the rate of 150 or 200 a year exonerations, they're going to die in prison. Many of them, and uh, there just aren't the resources. Uh, it's really sort of an indictment on the whole legal system that that these exoneries are coming from uh, from law students, you know, legal clinics at law school schools. They're the ones that are uncovering these. Some journalists. Um, so, you know, it. Stephen's case is is unusual, very unusual, unique really in, the, in one way, and that is that he was already exonerated once by DNA after spending 18 years wrongly convicted. And then thankfully he's the only DNA exoneree who's ever then since been charged and convicted of a serious crime like murder. Yeah. Um, so he's unique that way, but in every, every other respect what happened in his case and particularly what happened in Brendan's case is utterly commonplace in America. So I have to ask:
2: Is there is there something about the American justice system that makes so many uh, so many kind of false convictions? So, for example, is it the culture? Is it the narcissism of prosecutors? There's got to be something. There's got to be a, some sort of explanation.
1: You know, there is, and a lot of people have tried to dis- uh, study this question. I have my own ideas. I, whenever I've gone anywhere to speak, I try to. Um, if I can, if I can find a, a trial that's going on, I'll sit in on it and watch. And, and I've been to the UK many times and I've, I've sat in on trials in London and Glasgow, Edinburgh. Um, and just watching the way the prosecutors handle those cases is very different than in America. Um, Dean and I watched a, a closing arguments of the, the, the barristers for, for both the defense and the, the government the Crown, and afterwards, it was like, we turned to each other and said, you can't imagine any American prosecutor being as sort of open and um, uh, civil uh, about the the problems. Well, yes, you know, maybe this, you know, there is some innocence, there's some question of this gentleman's innocence, but I put to you and, you know. Um, and in America, it just seems like maybe the culture of competition that, um, that we have, everything is a is a fight, but it's a win-win, you know, it's a win-lose opposition uh, um, situation in courts. And maybe it's, you know, prosecutors are told that they're supposed to do justice, they're supposed to seek justice, not seek convictions. But when you get into the heat of battle, um, it's a very, very uh, adversary system, uh, many prosecutors, cut corners to try and get a conviction. Um, Some of them are downright corrupt, hiding evidence from the defense that point to someone's innocence. Um, Some of them become even ones who are not corrupt. They they often become so um, wedded to the the position that they maybe that the police have brought to them that they're they just it's like they have blinders on. You know, it's tunnel vision. They only see one one uh, view of the case, and, um, you know, I talk about this in my book, this Ralph Armstrong case that took me 15 years to to ultimately get, the case was dismissed because of the prosecutor misconduct. And it was a prosecutor who generally had a reputation of being a pretty reasonable guy. But in this case, he just could not accept, I think, he could not accept that he had convicted an innocent man and let the real killer go free. And I think that that's one of the operating principles that has made it so difficult in America.
0: It seems like the UK legal systems follow in in the footsteps of the American legal system. And one of the things that perhaps boggles our minds here is plea bargaining because if you look at the story of Khalif Browder, how that came out in uh, 2017, you know, he, he was innocent. They said he'd stole a backpack and they said to him, well, sign this plea bargain saying you did it and we'll let you out tomorrow. He said, well, I've not done it. I'm not going to sign it. So he continued to be incarcerated and suffered absolutely horrendous abuse. And then you've got people who are innocent. They they know if they go to trial, they'll get made an example out of. They'll get some super aggravated sentence to deter others from going to trial. And they're innocent and they say, look, you can go to trial and get decades or you could sign this plea bargain, you know, get two years, get five years, whatever it is. And you get innocent people pressurized into signing yep. these plea bargains. So how how prevalent is that? And how, how
1: can that ever be fixed? You know, it's a serious problem and it's made worse in part because of the the way um, the way the laws are structured. So in, in the UK, for instance, it, um, I mean, we call it a trial penalty. That if you go to trial, you're penalized. In the UK, um, if you plead guilty within a certain time frame, which is pretty early in the case, you get like one third off, like a one third discount, <laughs> um, just for doing that. Um, but if you if you go too long and and don't accept the plea bargain and you go to trial, that you lose that. In America, it's different. America, in some ways, it's it's even worse. Um, I got a case right now, a guy I'm absolutely convinced is innocent, who is charged uh, um, with a mandatory minimum 25 years in prison if he loses at trial. Prosecutor is already offered. If he pleads guilty to this lesser offense, I'll recommend five to seven years in prison. Now, what what do you do? You're innocent. You, you have faith in the ju- jury system, justice system. Um, this prosecutor, by making that offer, basically says, I don't think he needs 25 years in prison, but I'm still going to prosecute him under this statute that will require it if he's convicted. That the judge Mm -hmm. will have no discretion to, to give him anything less than 25 years without parole. That's so, and we have many laws like this that give prosecutors immense negotiating power and really up the ante for a defendant who chooses to go to trial. And many choose not to because of that. You know, what are, you know, particularly people of color. You know, uh, you know, what are my chances? Um, I had a guy whose case was reversed by the Innocence Project and then they were trying to, they were going to retry it, a homicide. He got 55 years in prison his first time around. Maintained his innocence all along. There was good evidence of that. I took over the case on the eve of trial, the Friday before the Monday trial, prosecutors finally says, I'll make you a deal. If he pleads to this negligent homicide, got to plead guilty. I'll recommend, um, he's already done five and a half years. The maximum penalty was five. And so what do you do? It's like, you know, I'm innocent. I've fought this for five and a half years. And now, what, am I supposed to plead guilty? Well, I put my faith in the jury system once and I lost. Yeah. What do you think he did? He, he took, took the, the deal. took the deal because, yeah. uh, and yep. is that a
0: financial incentive from the state because if they take the deal, they can't be compensated for being incarcerated on, you know, if they're innocent?
1: You know, there, there might be some of that. Um, it, that's not really that big of a concern in for a lot of cases um, because the the amount of compensation that's, Available. If first of all, you have to show that you're actually innocent. You'd have to, um, and uh, you got to go in front of a board. And there's 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 caps on what you can get. Wisconsin's obscenely low five thousand dollars a year, up to a maximum of five years. <laughs> Twenty five thousand dollars to spend five years in prison. Wow, that's, that's what the compensation. That's nice. Now, if, if not you can, no, it's a it's a horrible. Now, if you can sue and succeed and get past all these you know, qualified immunity obstacles and show that the police, you know, did more than just negligence, that they were actually corrupt or something. You could get a lot more, but um, but for most cases, I think it, it, the financial incentive is not really, the the state doesn't, prosecutors at least, don't really care about the money aspect of it because they are absolutely immune, which is absurd. Um, i've always wondered
2: whether part of it might also be their reputation i mean you mentioned how competitive some of the prosecutors can get i've worked in the in the british legal system um because i work as an expert witness i've spoken to barristers judges there doesn't seem to be this determination to be unbeaten whereas you get that from some um some American senior lawyers, you know, they have an unbeaten almost like they're boxers. They have this unbeaten record and they don't want to <laughs> lose a case. So right. I wonder whether that's part of the culture as well. I,
1: you know, I think that probably is part of it too. Um, you know, but frankly, prosecutors should win almost every time anyway. I mean, they have the ability, if the case is weak, like this guy I just told you about, you know, he rather than lose the case, he was able to to reduce it and give a plea bargain that the, the defendant couldn't refuse. And um, I can't do that if I've got a case that I, uh, you know, I have to go to trial unless the prosecutor is reasonable enough and the prosecutor wants to get a notch of some sort. Um, we had another case, uh, my wife actually was involved in a case where a guy was charged with homicide, said he was innocent, in jail pending the trial. The uh, the cops, these two detectives go out and follow the lead that took them to Ohio and they found a guy who actually was the shooter, the killer. And um, this detective who actually knew my wife pretty well from other cases, told her that before going to the prosecutor, or rather rather than going to the prosecutor. And the DA was pissed. He she was like, hey, wait, I, I was going to offer him a plea bargain. You know, I wanted to get a conviction. He's innocent. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. This is this kind of thing happens all the time. I'm I'm sad to say.
2: Sean, sure, I was going to ask you if you don't mind, if you from your uh, previous experiences, did you ever run into anybody in the prison system in America who was later on found to prove to be innocent?
0: Oh my goodness, there was all kinds of shenanigans. So my lawyer, Alan Simpson, got Ray Crone, known as the Snaggletooth Killer, off death row. In his case, he'd been at a bar; waitress was found dead. Because he'd been at the bar they they went to him and there was a bite on the victim and there was dna his dna didn't match the bite mark didn't match and the state of arizona paid an expert witness fifty thousand dollars to say that his teeth matched the bite mark on the victim he almost got excused multiple times he was within within hours or days his mom, like, almost had a heart attack in the courtroom because he was with his mom that night. She knew he was innocent. And the state, um, my lawyer sued the state of Arizona to release the DNA through the federal court system, and it was run through a crime lab, and it matched a, a predator, and it was solved. state of Arizona didn't even give him an apology. And this, this is called testy lying now. It's so common. Um, yeah. what, what, what's your thoughts on
1: testy lying, Jerry? Well, you know, just just real quick, a, a very very similar case happened in Milwaukee, um, Robert Lee Stenson, where a guy was convicted based on bite mark evidence as well, and and uh, the Innocence Project ultimately got him exonerated with a hit, um, the DNA that matched a guy who was a serial killer who had been convicted of other cases. Um, so, you know, just you know, test to lying is where where officers. You know, look. One of the things that anybody who works in the criminal justice system—prosecutors, judges, and defense attorneys—know is that police officers sometimes lie. They do, um, and it's often looked the other way because they think, "Well, this guy's really guilty anyway." I mean, we used to have these cases when I was a public defender way back. We called them "dropsy" cases, where cops would uh, know that they, you know, they they would do an illegal search, but they would claim that they didn't. That they got this guy on the street, and as right as the cop walked up, he pulls the drugs out of his pocket and dropped it right on the ground in front of him. Like, come on! And uh, and judges just bought that stuff and would deny <laughs> motions to suppress, and it happens all the time. But um, if I could just go back real quickly uh, to the the bite mark thing, because I, I'm re- I'm involved. I've always had a niche in forensic evidence. Forensic science, my undergraduate degree was in forensic studies at IU, Indiana. And um, there is so much wrongful, uh, so many wrongful convictions based on bogus or flawed or overstated forensic evidence. And bite mark evidence is one example. It's just complete junk science. Um, The human body, I mean, study after study now shows is is just too malleable. Skin is too flexible to be able to to give some sort of impression that can really be matched with any degree of reliability. It should never be used in court. And so after Making a Murderer came out and Dean and I tried to use some of our um, public capital, so to speak, to, to, to join with a UW law professor, uh, Keith Finley, to start the Center for Integrity and in Forensic Sciences, and it's a, you can find him, more information online, uh Justice, CIFSjustice.org. And it's the only nonprofit that's really focused on trying to improve the reliability of forensic evidence in court, keep the junk science out so that people aren't wrongly convicted by it. It, 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 the FBI, by the way, 15 years ago um did an, a, a study of another kind of forensic evidence called. Microscopic Hair Comparison. Oh. Um, you wouldn't be at risk, Sean, because you don't have any <laughs> hair that you could leave it. <laughs> but what they do is they, they'll they find a hair at the, at the crime scene or on a body or something, and then when they arrest a suspect, they'll pluck a hair from his head, and they put it under this dual, um, uh, you know, dual v- vision uh, microscope, and they compare it. And it's always been, for decades it's been used, and, um, it's always been considered bogus because um, th- there's just too many dissimilarities and it's too subjective. There's you know saying that hey, this this is similar or not similar um, when DNA evidence later proved them wrong. Um, so the FBI study two hundred randomly picked two hundred and sixty eight of cases where their own analysts testified. The, supposedly the best and the brightest, you know, they learn at Quantico, Virginia. Um, And they went back and they looked at their testimony at trial and they shockingly found 95% of them overstated or or downright wrong in their testimony about microscopic hair comparison 95% and of those 32 of them were death penalty cases 14 people were dead nine of them by execution now. Yeah, um, there was other evidence in the case, probably on most of those. But to their credit, the FBI no longer uses that forensic evidence, but it's being used all over America and the state level still to this day. As is bite mark evidence.
0: Oh my goodness, that is absolutely abhorrent. It's shocking, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it's you know it's a problem not just in America. By the way, you know uh, forensics. you know, one of the issues is the independence of crime labs. If they're if they're organized under law enforcement, and they get their you know performance evaluations every year from the people that they're supposedly um, supposed to be independent of, then it it makes people um, it makes their evidence less than reliable. Let's put it that way. And. Uh, the U.K. and the Netherlands um, had some independent labs that were doing good work, but the funding kind of dried up and then there are huge backlogs and they're they're now shriveling down to, to, to nothing or in some places. Um, in America, there's only one really large independent crime lab left. It's in Houston. It's considered, it's fabulous, um, it's not run by, law enforcement at all. It's completely independent of that, has a separate board, and they get applications from forensic scientists who want to do good work and want to work at a good place from all over the world. So it's very competitive. And you know, one of our long term goals is to is to make labs more like that.
0: Occasionally I hear stories of crime labs asking the prosecutor what result do they want for DNA tests, etc. Is is that true? Does that happen?
1: it does happen sadly and you know there's um look one of the big problems is this is a human endeavor and you know human beings that are flawed that that have power um can cause a lot of damage in the criminal justice system and that that includes prosecutors it includes judges it includes crime lab analysts and police officers
2: um expert witnesses
1: expert witnesses and defense attorneys. There's some very bad defense attorneys out there, unfortunately, who who don't do a good service to their clients. And all of that thrown together into a stew has just made a mess, what I call the illusion of justice, Um, that people think justice is happening in the courts. Some people say that, you know, the system is working exactly the way it's intended to do, Uh, but this illusion to keep people thinking that there's justice when there really isn't. And, you know, there's enough evidence of that that I, I, I think that there's a ring of truth to it, frankly. Um, there's cottage industry of private prisons and um, police, law enforcement agencies that are funded by these grants that basically depend upon them creating or, or charging people with crimes. Um, and it's just on and on and on. And it's, um, you know, it's a real problem. Uh, we need it's going to take a long time to get out of it there are some things we can do gradually to do that um, and a few a few reforms have happened directly as a result of making a murder um, the experience of Brendan dassey 16 year old um, uh, challenged young man with, with special ed classes who is um, Basically, coerced by these detectives into confessing to something that there's no evidence of. In fact, the evidence disproves this bloody murder. That supposedly there would be all, you know, all this evidence. If you, when you watch it, you'll see, or those viewers who've watched it already know, um, this poor guy. You know, there's just no evidence of his guilt other than his confession, which is so false, it's it's laughable, and yet he's still in prison. Um, Several states after that have passed laws. Uh, Illinois, um, Seattle, other other jurisdictions have passed laws that now make it illegal for police officers to interview uh, somebody like 15 or 16 years old, um, at least in certain serious crimes like murder, sexual assault, without an attorney present or without a, pre- a parent present or something, so that they're not left, you know, sort of thrown into the wolves' den of trained detectives who know how to get people to confess and even false confessions.
2: So in the UK, we have appropriate adults. And if you have somebody that's deemed to be vulnerable, whether they're young or they have like a learning disability or a mental illness, uh, then you have to have one of those present to make sure that the, the suspect's not being uh, misled by the police.
1: And you and- also have you also have station house, sort of station house lawyers who are on standby. Um, that can come down to the police department and represent somebody when they're being interrogated, where in America that doesn't happen.
2: There was something that you said before, Sean, have we got enough time? I was going to ask Jerry about um, Ralph Armstrong. So this this yep. person that you mentioned in your book, if you're able to talk about it, you know, just very briefly, what's, what's his situation? What was he accused of?
1: So he was, he was charged with the, uh, the a brutal rape and murder of a co-ed friend of his who was, like a friend of his fiancee at the time. And um, he was convicted, maintained his innocence all along. It was a bizarre case where there was only one so-called eyewitness, a neighbor who saw this person going back and forth to the house where the victim's body was found, who identified Ralph Armstrong, but only after he'd been hypnotized and uh, gave a description that was completely different. And, you, and they recorded the hip, the hypnosis session, and you can, the cop is in the room, which is a no-no, you shouldn't be in there, and you can, when he gives a description as he, while he's hypnotized, you can hear the officer saying, no, he was taller, whispering to him, no, he's taller. And they get him to change his, you know, so despite all that, the courts would not give him, um, would not reverse his conviction. And, and ultimately, his case was the landmark case on hypnosis. And they, they said, now, from this part on, you, you have to follow all these rules, which weren't followed in Ralph's case, but ah, we don't care about him. It's everybody else from that point on. Anyway, I fought ultimately for 15 years before he was exonerated, 60 different pieces of evidence at the crime scene were uh, excluded him from DNA. Um, we found another. Uh, because the science had advanced in the 29 years since he was originally charged, we found a new semen stain on this bathrobe belt that was the presumed murder weapon that was found strapped on her body that was used to strangle her, and he's excluded from that. And um, there was a partial profile, not a fully developed one yet but we had one of the best experts in the country working on this case. This was an innocence project case I was working on with Barry Sheck from New York. And um, we're confident that we could have developed that more uh, and maybe found the real killer. Well, the prosecutor uh, basically had it destroyed, um, sent it back to the crime lab, even though I had a court order that said that the state could not touch any of this evidence without first notifying me. They sent it to the crime lab for an additional test that destroyed the evidence, and so it could not be tested. And um, partly because of that, the case was dismissed. Now, Ralph um, has really become very successful. He's an auto salesman now. I think he's moving up into like finance manager at at a um, Mercedes, Audi um, dealership in Albuquerque. So, uh, but he was like, 64 years old or something when he got out, and all those years, um, he did sue, but he got, a, you know, maybe a million and a half for night for 29 years. Really, a, they settled for that. It was it was a paltry sum, and partly it was that low because the prosecutor who's who violated the court order and had this evidence destroyed was absolutely <laughs> immune from being sued for that. Excuse me. So bless you. Oh, there. So, yeah, I mean, that's a very, very interesting case. He's a very, very interesting man, very intelligent, educated. And um, I talk about it in more detail in my book if people want to want to learn about it. Um, but there there's many people like him out there.
0: This is the last question, then, Jerry. Uh, we, sure. um, I'm curious as to whatever happened to Len Kaczynski, Brendan's mm-hmm. original lawyer.
1: The guy, well, after the case, uh, he became a judge. Um, (laughs) Although only a municipal court judge. So he couldn't send people to jail. He could just fine them, basically. You know, lesser, uh, minor kind of offenses. Um, But he was, uh, he lost his ability to be a judge because he got into this weird thing where he was, alleged to have been sexually harassing his clerk. And um, apparently it's a bizarre story (laughs) if you find it online, but he actually, she claimed that one one day he would, she wouldn't respond to him and she's sitting in front of him in the the bench and he's back up behind. And he started meowing at her like a cat. She, She said for like 20 minutes or 40 minutes just kept meowing. Uh, which is interesting because if you re- if you remember from making a murder, what when, when they uh, he uh, Brendan's on the phone with his mother when he when he first meets or after he the day after he first met Kaczynski, and she asks him, "What do you think of your lawyer?" And he's like, "Well, I don't know. He he likes the same animals I do, cat." <laughs> yeah. uh, so it comes back around to end up being this sort of bizarre um, harassment story. Now. So he has, he's no longer practicing. He's not a judge anymore. I don't know exactly what he's doing. He had some health issues for a while that may have played into, into that case. I don't know. Um, but he certainly did not do Brendan any service um, when his his uh, appeal lawyers, uh, Laura Eyreiter and Steve Drizzen took over the case. And because Kaczynski was appointed by the Public Defender's Office, he had to keep track of his time because you get, paid on an hourly basis for those cases. And they discovered in the first month that he represented this 16-year-old boy charged with first-degree homicide. He met with his client for one hour and 30 hours with the media. So that, to me, that that sort of says it all. And and the federal judge that reversed his conviction pointed that out as just, you know, unconscionable, unconscionable conduct. And uh, his conviction was reversed originally by a federal judge and then it was, uh, that decision was was upheld reversing the conviction by a three-judge panel and then it was appealed again to a full panel of seven and he lost four to three based on sort of legal technicalities um, rather than the actual merits of the case. So. Well,
0: huge thank you for joining us. We salute you. You were the knight in shining armor in this cesspit of the Wisconsin justice system. I urge people to buy Illusion of Justice. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's a fantastic book, and it's just got l- much wider social implications than the Stephen Avery case. Is there anywhere uh, people can support you or follow you on the socials, Jerry?
1: Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's just at J. Yeah, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not as not as on, uh, particularly Instagram. I'm not on there as much. Um, I don't like taking selfies. I guess I don't know. <laughs> but um, but Twitter, I'm on uh, pretty frequently, and I, I try and tweet about certainly any developments in these these guys' cases. But I also try and spread awareness of other cases and and other um, similar issues uh, that I see in our justice system to try and get people interested. Uh, because that's one of the things I, I've really liked um, from the original notoriety of this thing. I, I just loved hearing from young people who would say, "You know, I'm inspired by the work that you and Dean Strang did, and I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a criminal defense lawyer now." And and that's that's great. That's you know, I'd love to see more of that. So um, so thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed seeing you again, and um, and meeting you as well, Daz. It's a
2: pleasure to speak
0: to you, Jerry. Yeah, we love we love what you're doing, and long may it continue. Thanks, Jerry. Cheers. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. All right. So, quite an interesting four hours we've had today. Huge thank you to Shahom, and please support him at Apsayrassor Minds
2: on YouTube. Any any conclusory remarks? Um, I think the, of. Of the whole evening, the thing that has made that has affected me the most was made me contemplate the situation situations the most, or my thought process the most was Nima, Kate's talking about the incel movement. Mm. Uh, I hadn't, I, I had some quite strong preconceived ideas about it because of mm. cases that I've been involved. But yeah, so that's the thing that stood out to me the most. But yeah, it's been a very uh, interesting evening as always, Sean. You get a big variety of cases. So any mm-hmm. business true crime? there's lots of different angles and aspects that they would have enjoyed this evening
0: yeah i appreciate that i'm gonna i think i'm gonna have a hot bath now to restore my back